Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to AccessibleWorld.org, a worldview of history room. We're delighted tonight to talk about the book Genghis Khan. Um, and Don Queen will is our host, of course. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the first uh, section over to a, an interview that Don got, and then we'll then we'll start talking about the book. A button to activate. Thank you, Bob, and good evening, everyone. Tonight we're going to discuss the book Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford, Professor. Weatherford is a descendant of Jack Red Eagle Weatherford, who was a leader in the unsuccessful war of 1813 by the Creek Nation against the United States. He grew up on a farm in South Carolina and spent several years in Germany, where his father was stationed with the U.S. Army. Incidentally, he returned to Germany to do field work for his Ph.D. dissertation entitled Family Culture, Behavior, and Emotion in a Working-Class German Town. He obtained his BA degree from the University of South Carolina in 67 and master's degrees in sociology and anthropology in 72 and 73. In 1977, he received his previously mentioned Ph.D., in anthropology from the University of California, San Diego. Prior to his employment by McAllister College in 83, he worked in the office of Senator John Glenn of Ohio. He also obtained a postdoctoral degree in policy studies from the Duke University Institute of Policy Studies. In 1981, he published his first of eight books entitled Tribes on the Hill, Kinship Patterns and Byzantine Rituals of the United States Congress. Since he began teaching in 1983 at McAllister College, a private Presbyterian college in St. Paul, Minnesota, he has written numerous articles and books which have been translated into many languages and gained a reputation for activism assisting native peoples throughout the world especially in Bolivia, the Amazon and more recently Mongolia. Profits from his books have been donated to the Native American College Fund and the Native American Rights Fund and recently he has been sponsoring Mongolian students to study in the United States. The book Indian Givers, How Native Americans Transformed the World, published in 1988, was one of his better-known books, and he was honored by a special powwow at the Pine Ridge Reservation. Based on his childhood coin collecting, in 1997, he wrote A History of Money, which was adopted by the Conservative Book of the Month Club, and Charles Schwab is quoted as saying it was a, quote, good book to read. Genghis Khan was published in 2004 and made the New York Times bestseller list. It had first been published in Mongolia in both the ancient and modern language. Mongolia, whose culture had been brutally suppressed, enthusiastically received the book, and the author was awarded the nation's highest honor, the Order of the Polar Star, by the pre president on nationwide TV. So let's listen to part of an interview with the author himself describing the book. Tuesday morning, six minutes after 10 o'clock. Welcome to Mid-Morning on Minnesota Public Radio. Good morning, I'm Tom Cran. Jack Weatherford is a professor of cultural anthropology at McAllister College and is author of Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Welcome, Professor Weatherford, to Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. First, if I could ask you for a sketch of the life of Genghis Khan for us, please. 
so little has really been known about him aside from the conquests. And so that, for me, that was a part of the challenge, was finding out more about who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. And his origins are about as low as a human being's origins can be. He was born in one of the most remote places of Inner Asia, Mongolia, but to one of the poorest tribes out there. And uh, I think it's summed up in the fact that at age eight, his mother, who had been kidnapped from another tribe by his father, his mother was left alone with five children, and he was the eldest at age eight. That her husband was dead, the clan could not feed her, and so they put her and her five children out on the step to die. They took the animals away. She had nothing left but one stick. You can imagine being put on the plains of Minnesota with one stick and five children. And that woman, with a tenacity, with a reserve, with a genius that is hard to understand today, that woman saved every single child. She got him through it. And what year is this we are talking about? He, he was probably born in 1162. That's a year that we accept. So we're more or less talking about the year 1170 now. She was a, a very young woman in her, her 20s at this time with these five children. She also had two other children from her husband's other wife that she had to take care of. So in the end, she saved seven lives out there as well as her own by digging up roots, by finding food for them in places that uh, were unimaginable to us today. If you can, as I say, just imagine being out there on the plains of Minnesota. You don't even have firewood to make a fire with. That woman did it. This was the life of Jenga. This is where he started. And then uh, soon after that, after he was saved uh, by his mother, he was uh, captured and enslaved by another clan. So here was a guy who started as an outcast. He became a slave. He escaped all this. And he slowly worked his way up to being the greatest ruler in the history of the world. Now you say his personal goals, fears, and desires engulfed the world. How true is that, literally? I really meant that statement because after this horrible childhood and this escape from slavery, he had one really good thing in his life, and that was a girl whom he had met who was slightly older than than he was. Her name was Berta. They were betrothed at the age of eight, and uh, just before his father had died, so just before all this horror began for him, they had been betrothed, and then she came to him as a teenager, somewhere around 16 or 17 years old, and married him. But she was only with him for a few months before, again, another clan came along and kidnapped her. So to this point, he'd been an outcast and a slave. He had nothing in his life of any good, and he loved this girl passionately, and she loved him. They stayed together their entire lives, except for this one episode. And he then was faced with what was he going to do. In order to get her back, he had to get allies. He had to go get people to help him. And that was the great moment of his life, I think, the defining moment. And he decided he would rather fight and die if necessary to get her back than to live without her. So it was his personal desire that became the quest then that ended up he ended up conquering most of the world. What drew you to this subject? No, I there are two answers. One is as a kid I was very interested in Mongolia. That's okay. kind of the background. I had five Mongolian stamps, two of them were triangles. I just loved those stamps. I studied them all the time. This I wanted the kid to, growing up where? Uh, well, this is mostly in South Carolina. South Carolina, okay. And I wanted to go to a country where people had triangle stamps and you could get one at the post office. Or, there was something about Mongolia that attracted me. And then when I was uh, reading first, it was Marco Polo, Kubla Khan, Genghis Khan. I was so enraptured with that. And then I kind of lost it. Even in college, I tried to go to Mongolia to study, but it wasn't permitted mm-hmm. because of the Cold War at that time. Right. So I lost all of that in my life. Yet I was always studying the relationship of tribal people and globalization. And when I went to Mongolia for the first time in the mid-90s, it's just a passionate return to my own youth, my own interests, and falling in love with this country. There was a feeling. I got to Mongolia, and I looked around, and there was a there are places, and it happens over and over, it's not one place, but there are places among Mongolia, I can look to the horizon in every direction, and I can walk in any direction I want, ride in any direction I want. The world is open. There's no private property. There are no fences. There's no, of course, there's no bridge to help you get there, no road to help you get there, but the world is completely open and with a beauty that is indescribable. To see herds of animals moving across this landscape and to know that you can ride for 1,000 miles without reaching any impediment. There's just a feeling of exhilaration in that. And just the practicality, how do you make your way there? And uh, uh, what brings you there? So it was quite 
easy enough really to get there. It's once you get there, uh, there's no infrastructure to get you around. So you're sort of on your own and you're dependent upon the local people. And that's how I really functioned in Mongolia. It was the local people. And in a way, they wrote this book for me because they decided what I should do, what I should see. And I went along with them. I, I didn't approach it as any other project where I knew what I wanted. I really let the people themselves, and I mean that literally, of, I would get up not knowing where we were going. Okay. And we would go there, and the people would tell me why they had taken me there, what they wanted me to see, what they wanted me to think about, and what they wanted to discuss. So when you set out in the 90s, you were not uh, working on a book about Genghis Khan? No, no. What I was, was your... working on uh, looking at the connection of the tribal people to uniting uh, China and Europe through the Silk Route. Okay. So the Silk Route was more or less the theme. I didn't have exactly what I was going to do with that, but I was exploring various tribal groups. And Mongolia was a little bit off the Silk Route, but because of my childhood love for it, I wanted to go there. And when I went there, then there was this incredible magic. I was absolutely captured. You say uh, in your book, it's one of your principles, that people can lie, but places never do. Oh. And uh, am I correct? Am I getting that correct? Yes, I did. Yes, I think I wrote that, yes. And um, that uh, this place then was telling you the story of Genghis Khan, or at least gelled in your mind that you need to do research to tell this story? Is that how that worked? Yes. There are two things that are going on. So one is uh, Mongolia itself opened as a country at the same time that then was possible to go into the area where Genghis Khan had been raised. That part had been closed not for 70 years, but for 750 years. It was closed to everyone for 750 years. the great years. taboo? The great taboo, they call okay, it. Tell us about, yeah. So that was opening up, but at the same time, a secret document that's called usually just the secret history of the Mongols, it had been discovered uh, in the mid-1900s. It had been thought uh, lost, and many people thought it had never existed. It was rediscovered in the 1900s, a coded form, and that had just been published finally in English in 1982 by Harvard University. So 1982, the information is available. 1990, the country opens, and then I became one of the first people allowed to go into this innermost area, that great taboo, the Ikhori. Now tell me, why, first of all, why is it closed for 700 years? What's, what's happened there at the Great Taboo site? The first sort of aspect of closing it was in Genghis Khan's own lifetime, he realized that his homeland was going to be overrun by people. Uh, because he had such a large following. He started off with just a small clan. He ended up with a nation of one million and then an empire of hundreds of millions. He wanted that closed to foreigners, so he closed it to people outside of his own uh, ethnic group, the Mongols. Then when he died, he was taken back there for burial, and then the Mongols closed it to everyone, including to other Mongols. And so a tribe was stationed there to protect it, and it would, only certain religious events would be allowed there, such as the burial of future Khans. So Kublai Khan was brought back there and buried, for okay. example. Otherwise, nothing could happen. No tree could be cut, no animal could be killed in that area, nothing could be built, uh, nothing could be erected, uh, no one could go in there and drink, nothing could happen. So this giant area of about 2.2 million acres was completely sealed for 800 years. 2.2 million acres was completely sealed for yes. 800 years. How did and they... it's surrounded by another 2.2 million, that is a, a buffer zone. And if, if, as you say, there are no uh, uh, fences or there is no private property, how did they secure this area? They stationed a tribe there, and the tribe stayed till the 1920s to kill anyone who came. All around the edge of it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Really? Yes. And, uh, but also religious, exactly? yep. except okay. uh, religion itself kept people out, too. They were quite, uh, both out of honor and out of fear, um, people really wouldn't try to go there. Only foreigners would even try to go there. Some mm -hmm. foreign armies, for example, but... They didn't succeed. So what we know, or what we knew for years about uh, Chinggis Khan, uh, largely comes from this document, the secret history, the secret history as you call it. And uh, uh, tell me about this document, and the, it's sort of doubly coded, isn't it, and how you cracked this code? No, what we knew did not come from that document. What we knew came oh. from all the enemies of the Mongols. So written by uh, Persians, Arabs, Europeans, Chinese. It's the people who had been conquered by the Mongols. The secret history really was secret because uh, Genghis Khan had allowed nothing to be written in his own lifetime. Why is that? Uh, 
he was a very secretive person. He he didn't trust many people. He he trusted not even his own family really, but he trusted those men who had been around him for a long time and had shown their loyalty to him. So he didn't allow his portrait to be made. No statues could be made. No monuments could be made. Nothing could be named after him. Nothing could be written about him in his lifetime. He didn't allow it. But right after he died, a member of his family wrote down the story of the family. And it's all the family story. It's not a political biography. It's not idealizing him. It's showing all the warts and everything wrong he ever did. And then that document was put into a code by Chinese scribes using Chinese characters to represent Mongolian sounds. So in order to translate it or to understand it, decode it, you'd have to know how Chinese was spoken at that time and how Mongolian was spoken at that time, and then you could slowly decipher it. But it took a hundred years to do that. Mongolian is uh, uh, depicted in, in what sort of alphabet? How is, it, uh, liter- how is it literated, if you will, or, or on the page? Uh, today, there are two that are used. One is the Cyrillic that was imposed in the 1930s, and so that's the most common. From the Soviet Union? Yes, Russian, by, yeah. by Stalin. However, Genghis Khan himself ordered the creation of an alphabet. He was in, very much in favor of the use of alphabet, but not to write about him or about the military. It was only to write about the laws of his country. He created that in the year 1204. So this year, 2004, is the 800th anniversary of the creation of the Mongolian alphabet. So you have this document, the secret history, which has been, in fact, secret, uh, and, and then is uh, a doubly uh, coded. And then the scholars have gone through and sort of translated it into, into English, I'm assuming. Yes. And this is available, uh, you say, it was done at Harvard? Or it was published by Harvard in 82. Harvard University yes. Press. Um, how does someone like you, or how do we approach a document like that and sort out the legend from the fact? I took the document, quite literally, the English version, and, and now there are, in fact, three English versions, which is excellent. We can do a lot of comparison. And the modern Mongolian, because even for Mongolians, it's a deciphering of a Chinese script, so it's not their own language. So we took this in different languages, and we simply took that document with us out there into the countryside and figure out where could this happen? How could it happen? Is it true? Which direction would the horses have to come from? What season could it happen in? Because there, that place is snowed in in the winter, or this place is too boggy in the summer. So we just went through places, not places with any buildings left or anything that would be of interest to an archaeologist, but the place itself. We tried to more or less interrogate those places, holding those documents there. And you line up the documents, and eventually it falls into place, and you see, aha, yes, they had to be here. Those horses came this way. The others went that way. There's where they fled. Uh, It had to be in the summer because of these conditions, and we slowly put that together. It was the most incredible adventure of my life. All of this is very descriptive. So you can tell by the word itself what kind of place. And the best example I can think of is that Genghis Khan, when he first became the head of his tribe, very small group at that time, uh, there was a ceremony held, and it said it was held at a black lake at the bottom of a heart-shaped mountain. Well, you can go there and you can look until you find black water behind a mountain that is somewhat a heart shape. And so that's very easy to identify. Unfortunately, there are many, such as Spleen Hill, which was very important in the story. It's a little bit harder to find. But nevertheless, this descriptive quality, you can uh, often find the exact place, or you can at least reduce it down to two or three places where it could have happened. And the one thing, Professor Weatherford, we have not uh, gotten into is the sheer size of the Mongolian Empire at its height. Uh, So give us again the size of it and what year we're talking about. Put it in context. Yes, by the the mid uh, uh, 1200s, Genghis Khan was already dead. He died in 1227. But by the middle of that century, the empire stretched all the way from Korea to Hungary, all the way from India and Vietnam to Russia. No empire in the history of the world came close. No other conqueror in the history of the world has ever even conquered half as much as Genghis Khan conquered. And to this day, there has been no other empire like it there is the issue of violence. I think there's no question but that in battle, Genghis Khan was one of the most effective slayers of human beings the world has ever known. However, when Genghis Khan conquered a city, he always offered them an option. They could surrender and still have their independence under him, or 
they could fight him and be destroyed. And he was very effective in destroying cities. Mostly, however, he did kill the soldiers. For the most part, it wasn't a type of genocide where he killed innocent people. For example, uh, he always allowed anyone with any type of religious affiliation to live. He allowed anyone with a trade to live. The people he killed first and foremost were the rich people, the leaders, because he knew that they would forever be his enemies. And because of that, he acquired a tremendously horrible reputation as a barbarian. But the killing off of the leaders of foreign people is in many ways, I think, a more humane approach than the mass slaughter of the people. Today, often, we would rather bomb their cities than go in and kill the people who are the leaders. Genghis Khan had a, had a good approach to that. One of the estimates, a low estimate, I'm going to follow up here, is 1.7 million people killed in Central Asia, and estimates have run as high as, uh, uh, and you discount those, as 15 million. Yes. Uh, it, it, you know, I mean, 1.7 million is, is not an insignificant amount of people killed, uh, and yet you still call them destroyer of cities, not slayer of people. Yes. Uh, do you think you're perhaps understating that? I think that the numbers that are given for him are total fantasy. Uh, the only thing I can compare it to is if the history of the United States had been lost and was only known to us from Soviet and Nazi propaganda, that that's all we knew about the United States, then, of course, it would be one horror after the other. When Genghis Khan came in, uh, he did destroy some cities totally, a couple of them, uh, the same way that the United States destroyed Nagasaki and Hiroshima, almost totally, with the bombs. He did that as a demonstration uh, to the people when he came in. However, the killing did not reach the millions. Uh, those were fabrications that were made up by historians who often were in the employ of Genghis Khan because he wanted these stories to be told so that people would surrender. Now we simply accept it as fact because somebody wrote it down so long ago. You can go to these cities today, as I have done to the ruins of almost every one of them, and uh, not one of them. Now, one of them is anywhere close to large enough to even hold a million people if you packed them in like animals into a stall. It wouldn't work. So even the 1.7 million, which you in your book are, are you're not even willing to uh, uh, stand by that number? Uh, for the slaughtering, if you look at the actual slaughter of a small army of 100,000 people, you just figure out how many each one would have to kill. Now, a lot of people did die in, uh, in the diseases that were often accompanied to warfare and in famine and other problems associated with it. There was tremendous loss of life, yes. But the murder and annihilation of people, uh, it's mostly fabrication. Much of it is actually uh, taken from the account of another man with almost the same name, Tamerlane. Let's take another call. What was it about the Mongols in terms of population or technology that gave them an advantage? I do think there have been many waves of people. All the Turkic people, for example, came out of what is now Mongolia. Uh, the, the Huns and uh, the many different groups of Hun, the Hephthalites, various groups in history of which the Mongols were the last. This was the end of this great uh, time in history of 2,000 years of tribes coming out of Mongolia and then attacking the civilizations around them. I do not, however, see it as a, as a biological problem associated with population or with the environment itself, although many scholars have said that. I see it as repeatedly an effort by the tribal people of the steppes to repulse the power of the civilizations around them, that over and over the civilizations would move in and try to claim those lands, try to, in many cases, literally enslave the nomadic people there. And I see that the effort of the Mongolian people, the Huns, the Turkic people, all of these groups, exactly like those of, of Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Geronimo, of the great Indian leaders of America, they were trying to resist an invasion by civilized forces. And so over and over again, the people on the steppes of Eurasia would fight the civilized people, and, but occasionally they even took the fight all the way home to the cities. And that's exactly what Genghis Khan wanted to do. He wanted to destroy their irrigation systems so they could stop encroaching on the steppe. Genghis Khan, however, lived a long life. He, he lived to about age 66 or 67. When he died, his empire continued on for another 150 years. His sons and grandsons and great-grandsons continued the task that he gave them. He left them with a law that they abided by. He left descendants in power. The last one wasn't removed until 1920. So the whole last thousand years 
has been dominated by him. He left in, in uh, state uh, law declaring religious freedom for all people, although that has been, of course, disregarded and violated in history. It still set a standard of total religious freedom by which we still live, at least in our ideals. He set another law of diplomatic immunity for all envoys because every ambassador, every envoy was a potential bringer of peace. Would you have like would you like to have lived under his reign i much prefer the conveniences of modern life where i can study him i see jack weatherford the new book is called the genghis khan and the making of the modern world and uh, i thank you for sharing your views and your thoughts and your uh, research and passion for thank you, Tom. Uh, this it's leader today pleasure. on mid morning I'd like to thank Bob and Rick Harmon for their assistance in editing this interview. To get our discussion started, I have two questions posed by Robert Siegel of NPR and Tom Kranz of Minnesota Public Radio. One could uh, read the story of Genghis Khan and say, here is somebody who destroyed traditional order wherever he found it. Uh, created an empire that was mostly about exacting tribute from various uh, civilizations that were more advanced than his own. And he organized people into these phalanxes of uh, units of ten. And one can say we have here the, the core of the most fascistic totalitarian uh, uh, leadership one can imagine uh, and come up with a very negative review of this man. What, what am I getting wrong if I see him in that light? And finally, a question by Mr. Tom Cran of Minnesota Public Radio, which time did not permit me to include in the interview. There is the issue of violence and the issue of um, the uh, uh, taking or the overtaking of the Tartar people, for example, in a depiction in your book. And uh, there is a, uh, a fact, and I want to ask you if you think it's a fact on the record, that... Uh, uh, at one point, the uh, Mongol armies killed anyone taller than a cart handle. Uh, uh, and if, if that is the case, this is a very serious, I mean, this borders on genocide, doesn't it? Or it borders at least on, uh, uh, you know, extinction of a, of a people or the adults of a population. Again, was Genghis Khan, in fact, a fascist or was he a liberal progressive ruler? And did he commit genocide with the Tartars, or, I might add, the Khorasmian people, such as the city of Bukhara, as mentioned in the book. So, now is the time to discuss these or any other questions you might have, and I hope you enjoyed this book. Okay, is, does anyone have any comments on the book? I don't know about labels. I think in some ways he was extremely progressive because he came to cities and said, you know, surrender. You know, I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you have religious freedom. I'll let you keep your infrastructure, but it'll be under my rule. And um, if you don't, I'll destroy you. That's a little extreme, but these guys wouldn't believe him. And, and I, um, I think it was a very unique way of taking or killing the leadership. Killing the leadership. Uh, Kublai Khan kept more of the infrastructure. Like he, Kublai Khan was more Chinese than the Chinese. He kept them. I think that um, I think the problem with uh, Genghis Khan is a lot of times he was in the field fighting the wars, and he he couldn't micromanage. You know, they're always looking. They're always rebelling. And uh, but Kublai Khan to me uh, is a guy we had to, we had to look at later on. But I, I don't know about labels, but I think in that way it was very progressive of him to say, "Follow me, and you'll have religious freedom." Yes, you'll have your your tens, whatever. You you know we have to have a system here. We have to keep order. We have to have the government. The government is from on high. Well, uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong because you you might know more about this than me, but. I think when the term fascist first came about, it really meant a, a benevolent dictator. It certainly meant a dictatorship, but a benevolent dictator. And, and now it's come to be associated with you know, evil and mass murder and things. And I think the term itself as a political structure it sounds like what Genghis Khan was striving for. 
and he was probably a progressive fascist. Well, uh, fascism is its history besides Italy has has not been very very kind, benevolent in a lot of respects. It killed a lot of people, and of course it was fat copying the Romans. Mussolini copied the Romans, who did also enslave and kill an awful lot of people as part of their society. I, I'm losing my train of thought here, but uh, he, the fact that he didn't torture his prisoners, which most people did, and, and, they, and other conquerors did, in fact, kill people in mass. Uh, that, that's very true. But the peop- that's what I was going to say. The people, that the tradesmen and the skilled artisans, uh, they, he, he incorporated them into his government, but they had no choice where they went, they were slaves when they went. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they'd say, I'm probably mixing up books, but I need a carpenter. You know, you're one, okay, we're taking you to Mongolia or whatever. You know, we're taking you to work for the for the government. And, you know, after all, uh, supposedly to look for Saddam Hussein, Hussein, we destroyed his city. We're, we're good at that. We killed everybody. We didn't just go after the leadership and, um, uh, you know, drop in these huge bombs. And um, he did it, yes. He did destroy cities. That's interesting about 1.7 million and 15 million. Yeah, I wondered how big the cities were. I I kind of agree with the professor on that. I don't think he killed 15 million people. I think a lot of people died but from diseases, from famine, uh, and so forth. But uh, I, I, I liked his discussion there, the professor Weatherford, on that. Oh, I thought it was a really sort of unsettling book in the sense that you're right. There were these sort of um, t- stories about the, you know, what we would val- see as liberal progressive actions, but there was also the fact that it, we're talking about war and somebody who was building an, empi- an, an empire through um, war, and you know, so for me it was it was it was unsettling because there were things there that seemed progressive, but at the same time, it was uncomfortable um, ways he, he achieved what he wanted to. I uh, think that's very true. It was an interesting thing I read at the end of the, or somewhere in the book today, that uh, he did, never built buildings. You know, that uh, second chapter where he goes into the uh, mosque in Bukhara, that's the first building he ever went into. And uh, he always stayed outside the cities. Of course, they were pillaging the cities probably, but um, they, um, uh, he built bridges, not buildings. He built more bridges than anything else. Of course, he wanted to increase the uh, tribute that was paid by, instead of taxing them heavier, he improved the trade conditions so there was more wealth to uh, share with him. And I, I think that was certainly a progressive thing. I don't think that's what they did in medieval Europe. They just leaned on the peasants harder. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Don. Uh, I think maybe um, was it a, was it a mistake for him that he was too much the war general, too much out in the field. Uh, he tried to train his sons, but most of them were losers. You know, they tore the empire apart. And actually, I hope we discuss the era of the women. What was it? About eighty years where women ruled simply because they married into the families, and their husbands would die or get war or disease or whatever, or they killed them. And that was a pretty good era. I think those women did pretty well. But uh, I think uh, Genghis Khan said, you guys have to learn from me as a leader. You know, be reflective. Don't share all. But give the people something, action. But, um, you know, uh, be a wise leader. And um, they didn't listen to him. I think what the book said was that he was a loving husband, but a... But a terrible father, and he kind of realized it at the end. I think there was too much tribute coming in, especially uh, alcoholic. And, and one of them actually did die of alcoholism because there wasn't, you know, you have a fountain dispersing drinks. In the, I don't know what time they started drinking, but there must have been some real problems. <laughs> I remember, well, we won't remember too many parties, Don, but we had one in L.A., in uh, West Valley chapter. This guy had a sparklets, remember old sparklets uh, fountain? Loaded with his famous kamikaze punch, and all you did is get the cup and push the button. Oh my goodness! We had a beach party the next day, and I don't even remember it. Well, my my, I was intrigued in the fact that it's like, well, what gave him the idea to start 
conquering all these people, you know, it's such a great distance, and you have to realize they didn't have Humvees, and they didn't have uh, inter, inter ballistic missiles or anything. They did this all by, on horseback, and, and, and the fascinating thing was the little they carried and how they would go into these areas and use the stock that was there. I, I found that quite impressive. Yeah, I don't think the professor talked enough about his military genius. You know, how he would fight an army and then look like he's retreating and take them further and further, you know, away from the fort and all that and then strike. And, he, you, you know, with a newspaper, had we had the Internet, you could have tipped off these other countries. But many of them just did exactly that over and over again. And uh, it looked like, oh, we're going to beat these. Look at they're retreating. Let's chase them. And, uh, you know, uh, what was it? The um, Was it, well, I'm jumping ahead, but Kublai Khan tried to invade Japan, but he got the samurai warriors uh, because they wanted duels. And he said, no, we fight as one. We fight as an army. They had other reasons why they didn't succeed, but um, the samurai warriors said, no, let's have a duel one-on-one. -on -one. And there's no way. We're not going to do that. We might get killed. You know, but I thought his um, military genius, and I guess he drove on Mary Ellen because he, the more he conquered, the more tribute he got. But I don't understand. Are we to believe that the one million Bulgarians had such a, a genius of war under under um, Genghis Khan that they just started they just started um, taking over other countries, right, getting bigger and bigger? Well, I don't mean to keep interrupting here, but uh, the uh, I think. You know, he pacified the steppe there, the Mongolia, and they stopped raiding on each other, which I think they were kind of depending on. They didn't have any tribute or loot to go, and so he had to look. He, they were needing something else. He said, you know, for, for Mongols, no more kidnapping, no more enslaving Mongols, and no more raids and so on. And then the uh, Chinese who were running Manchuria, and I don't I think Jin or somebody, uh, sent a message, and they'd always kind of controlled the tribes, and they were demanding tribute from the Mongols, and that, that started him there. That gave him the excuse to go in, and he spent quite a bit of time in, and then, of course, this, the, um, the uh, Khorasmians and the other people in the Arab countries, they, uh, they, uh, met, they, they, uh, abused his ambassadors and got him very mad, and that was at the end of his career. He was 60 by then, but the, he looked, he, I think he, they got used to all that tribute and slaves coming in, just like the Romans did. Yeah, they said it would be, what, uh, a year and caravans would still be pouring into Mongolia. And then when he died, did, did not his son give out everything to the people, just handed it out and had a long party, one of his sons did, just drinking and handing out silks, and beautiful things to the people. Incredible. That Gute was the worst of the bunch. He only lasted two years, I think. But I think his mother negotiated around and got him in, and then he killed. I think he killed her. I, I got forgotten some of all the these these guys really were a bad bunch. And you're right about the. I was going to say the book. He was going to write a book about the Mongolian women. I don't know if he has or has not yet. Oh yeah, I was impressed with the women. The mother, one of the mothers there, who negotiated and manipulated to get her son in. But I don't think we're saying enough. I know we say Genghis Khan and, and all that, but Kublai Khan was pretty good. You know, he was really good in the way he set up the infrastructure. He kept it, but he, he controlled it. Uh, he was boxed in, not boxed in, though. I mean, the Egyptians and the, who, the Japanese and the Sun, he beat the Sun dynasty. Um, he tried some invasions that didn't work because of storms and diseases, and etc., but he uh, he was really he he started modernizing uh, if that's the correct word um, the the empire he led us into the modern world he he created um, sc schools he wanted to have a universal alphabet for the whole world he didn't succeed there but I like Kublai Khan and then he met Marco Polo of course who went back and wrote about him told everybody about him I think what I really liked uh, uh, they, some of some parts that he gives credit to uh, Genghis Khan for starting. Uh, public education, but it was Kublai Khan or, or one of the women that started the first uh, schools, you know, uh, for for education. And uh, and uh, I think what Genghis did though was get extend the um, 
Silk Road, for example, it was the first time in history that he didn't have to go through a lot of different countries and pay tribute and so on. He, he improved the roads and set the way stations and, and to improve the trade. And uh, because there was no religious discrimination, uh, they did do some scientific development. I, th I think there was a 10,000-year uh, calendar he, he established and things. I mean, you couldn't have done that in Europe with the church in the way you'd had to, you might have got burned at the stake. I I thought that was really interesting because having grown up where sort of you know my first introduction to history was pretty European focused. Um, it it was really interesting to learn more about sort of things that are coming that came from the east and also to understand um, some of the major differences. Um, I, I also, as I said, I mean, it was it was a little unsettling because there were good things that were done, but at the same time, the war part was was pretty um, overwhelming. Oh, I agree. It was it was quite Cheryl. It was quite, I picked out Cheryl. Quite violent, and I'm you know I'm a warrior and all that. But, oh, you know, to wrap a woman in the blanket and kick her to death. Wonderful, you know. And the orifices, you know. Oh my God, you know plug them all up to keep her soul inside of her and kill her, wrap her in satin and drown her. I mean, it went on and on. And I said, oh, my God, these are terrible people. But from their standard at that time, it was probably acceptable. Well, do you think that uh, if Genghis Khan had not united the tribes and things had kept gone their way, do you think there would have been a, a renaissance? The author is claiming that he, he, he brought on the... Renaissance and even the age of discovery. Well, I'll start. I, I think that's a stretch. I don't, I don't, of course, I'm maybe thinking it's just Europe and, and the Chinese were, of course, doing great work. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I, th I think uh, had he not done some of that, though, uh, some parts of the world would have been very slow at coming to the Renaissance. But for him to be responsible for it, I don't know. I'll see what other wiser people have to say here. Anybody else want to... Uh Say whether uh, give him the credit for the Renaissance. Well, just being very very practical, the Renaissance had to come from somewhere, and uh, I think it helped. Because uh, didn't he start to invade Europe after a while? Yeah, but I think of the Renaissance as, and maybe help me out here, but science, the Enlightenment, Age of Enlightenment, coming out of the Dark Ages. And um, I think he was very practical and uh, so forth. And I liked his methods of war. I mean, they were effective and the bridges and all that. But I don't know. It seems to be a, a stretch. Maybe the fact that he conquered these areas and people started to communicate with each other, better trade, that might have done it. So if you want to give him credit, it just seems like a stretch. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines that you just said that maybe he wasn't responsible for it per se, but his progressive ideas enabled the Renaissance to take hold in, in subsequently. It's the first time I think that the transfer of knowledge from China to Europe was more extensive. There was some infiltration of the, science, the, uh, of the Arab countries, which was way ahead of Europe. Uh, the, the, numer the concept of zero or whatever, the Arabic numerals and was a pretty important advance and many other things. I think the Aztecs had the concept of zero, too, some of the other parts of the world. Yeah, it's, uh, I just say that he's to be given credit for trying to train his sons and then relations, you know, great-grandfather and, you know, you go down. And um, maybe the next guy that was really special was Kublai Khan from, from Genghis Khan, who was also obviously uh, the... I don't know about the greatest, well, greatest ruler in the world, uh, of the world, and maybe he was the huge area that he, that he uh, was uh, such a little country, but they were just great warriors. I'd be interested to see if anybody has any theories as to why he was such a brilliant leader and ruler and military uh, strategist, but yet was a failure with his sons. Was he just busy with other things, or did he indulge them too much, or... You'd think he could have kept them under control if he can keep millions under control. It's a very familiar story for a lot of people, uh, because you know he was so busy with his 
army and traveling. I don't know that he brought the family. You know, we don't know what the family life was like, but I, I expect they got very spoiled and uh, excessive tribute and anything they wanted. I, I think that's probably, I'm just guessing, but the, and I think for some reason the uh, grandma, the, maybe it was uh, Berta, the, his wife or something, uh, kept the, brought up the, the four grandkids pretty well. They, they did very well. Yeah, you're right. It is a pretty common story. And I guess when people are thinking that somebody's going to be in charge someday, there's a lot of people around willing to spoil them. Yeah, and they fought. There was no loyalty. I mean, uh, he wanted that Joe, Joe Aquim, or what's his name? Don, that guy, that Joe, what's his name? He was terrible, you know. And didn't he choose the third son? Didn't they somehow elect the third son? But this Joe, whatever got in power and he was bad and um that other there were some bad leaders coming out of that those sons and um that one mother i don't remember her name her sons did well maybe a descendants of of um Genghis Khan and i i something ani something but she was to, is to give a lot of credit because four of her sons were leaders and she manipulated them into power if she could you know that's the ear of the women the author, for some reason, says uh, that he wasn't was not a military genius, uh, but, that, but that he learned from his mistakes. Well, that's a lot better than a lot of military people I've read about. Okay, so the author believes he was not a military genius, but learned from his mistakes. Okay, well, you're right. That's better than many of them. That's why he's a genius. Gonna make mistakes, but if you learn from them. But I think he was smart. I tell you that. I mean, they they had their weaponry. It was incredible. And they didn't lay siege to a fort. They just retreated, and then the army came out, and they split them up and got them. You know, or, and they always talked about his intelligence, that he wouldn't move on a city. He checked them out, and if they didn't know what was ahead, they stopped. They didn't just charge in. I think that's pretty smart. You know, it's funny that the, we read the book Apocalypse, and the Huns, I think it was the Huns, or whoever it was from the eastern it might have been the Turks or somebody else, but they played that same trip on the Europeans, and they, they fell for it. And I guess they didn't remember, but, you know, and they retreat until they got them in a trap and wipe, and they'd get dispersed, and they'd wipe them out. And that, that was crazy. But uh, I think if you win, <laughs> and you win repeatedly, you've got to have something going for you. And one more thing. Um I think Sherry brought it up uh, or alluded to it. The Japanese were pretty smart. Remember when they sucked in those leaders uh, on one of the – was it an island or was it on, on the coastline of Japan? They Let's have a ceremony. And they trapped them. They ambushed them. You know? <laughs> and the Japanese also, because of Kublai Khan – now I'm jumping to him – became militaristic. They you know, put away the incense and all that a little bit. Let's become militaristic. And that leads the, you know, the West – it took a while, but they became uh, very aggressive out there in Asia. And then, so that caused an effect again. You know, they were in, almost invaded. And fortunately, uh, in one storm, wasn't it, uh, the Khan lost 100,000 men? That's a big loss. Sounds like the, the uh, King Philip and the English all over again. But, uh, yeah, I think that if that storm hadn't come, that uh, Japan might have had a little different history. I totally agree, but they, they see it as the sun god intervening and, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, I'm, that's where I am in the reading. I'm, I'm going to try to finish it. Uh, but, gee, they, they sent ambassadors over and they'd execute them. Both sides did. I, mean, I wouldn't want to be a messenger, you know, coming from my country because you wouldn't live very long. Well, I think that uh, this book actually kind of lets us know the mentality of that part of the world because look what Russia did in World War II they you know they let Germany come in and they, oh yeah you can come in you can do this and that and the other thing and then the Germans couldn't get out and they and they did and they, the French the Napoleonic Wars they French did the same thing and and suffered the same fate and it's just a very different and interesting way of looking at it Oh, you're, that's a good point. I mean, we're having enough trouble with Afghanistan. Imagine a ground war against Russia. Oh, my, I don't even want to think about it. We would lose. We'd have to drop some big bombs more better than theirs, and it'd be awful. you know. But, yeah, the Russians would lay back. We, they got pounded, too, but they, they just hung in there, 
And uh, uh, the other one with the French and Napoleon was a good example. Well, that's the strategy some people are saying we should do in, in the Arab countries, go and stay offshore and just pound them from a distance and not try to go in into the villages and send soldiers who haven't been trained to deal with people and have to go through interpreters, which just doesn't seem to be working well in Afghanistan, and uh, just, just stay out of the country. One thing I read today, Don, and where I am, is Kublai Khan used land technique or whatever, militaristic technique, for a sea, for a navy, you know, and try to do it, try to make that happen, and it didn't work. He had to change his approach because he lost some invasions. You know, he lost some, or he had to retreat. Of course, he said he won, but uh, then the Japanese said, no, we won. He left, but uh, so it's how you look at it. Um, one more thing. Oh, dear, it eludes me. But, uh, okay, maybe it'll come back to me. Sorry. Well, I thought one of the interesting things is that, um, I mean, thinking about our discussions at present about do we send more men or not, and I thought it was interesting that that never seemed to have been Genghis Khan's response to any situation. It was, I mean, he had whatever size army he started off with. And he seemed to be able to figure out, as you said, using the intelligence that he gained about different towns or different cities, okay, this is what I've got and this is what I can do. And then he'd come up with a strategy. And it was never a discussion of like, oh, well, we need to send another 100,000 men to, to do this. I mean, part of that you can understand because the distances were so huge that as they sat there waiting for the other 100,000 men to show up, who knows what would have happened. I think a general had told him he needed more troops. He couldn't do anything. He wouldn't have been there long. <laughs> yeah, they kind of all or nothing. Swarm all around him, you know. Uh, didn't he uh, build a wall around one city, I believe, Don, that, uh, you know, he said, okay, I'm going to wall you guys in. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. Well, that's where uh, the, the Forbidden City comes from. And I, I was very fascinated with that, having been a history major in college and, and having wanted to emphasize the eat the Far East, and, and finally, in this book, in a book discussion group, finally learning what the Forbidden City actually was, uh, I, th I was very struck by that. He also turned a river... Uh a river into a city, a city too. He 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 did everything, and he picked up. He he had uh, foot soldiers from the Allies that came along in a number of cases. So he didn't always just have that hundred thousand or that part of it, but he also had them split up. So he didn't have the whole thing, and then he had his own his own corps of of ten thousand. I guess was his bodyguard. So he he I don't. I think some people say that he got wounded, but I wonder how he got close enough with 10,000 uh, 10, bodyguards. Well, and two things, Don. I mean, the engineers, didn't they build a dam and flood, uh, am I thinking right, and flood it out? Or is that one of the other books on Germany that we read, or the Netherlands Dutch? But I think it was in this book. They flooded out the other army. I mean, that's pretty smart. Because I don't think we have all the brains, but I mean, they said, hey, okay, we'll build a dam. And we'll just flood them out. We'll get them. And they did. I thought it was very smart too. They, they, he gave this well the, the armor that the the uh, the cavalry had his 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 people. It was just a, protected them in front. If you turned around and ran away, you, you were in trouble because there was nothing to protect you. It's interesting how it sounds like rather than just using traditional military tactics that have been used over and over and over again, he was willing to sit back and. Just think about things outside the box, as they say, and, and things that might work that were not the traditional tactics. I, I got to get have to get Nan Hawthorne to read this because she talks about her shield walls, everything back to back, and it sounds noble, you know. But Genghis Khan would go over him. He'd figure a way to get. He'd hit him from four sides if he had to. But uh, it, yeah, you're right, Sherry. He was out of the box. You didn't know what he was going to, what his strategy was going to be, and that's what made him so effective, in my opinion. I don't think Kublai Khan, well, not because he just lost, but he wouldn't leave, you know, Genghis Khan went into the field, and one time wasn't his brother-in-law killed, and he really went crazy. Then he, I think he killed the whole, everybody in the city. He just, you know, they killed his brother-in-law, and I was about 10 feet from him, so he was a warrior, you know. 
didn't it say that he actually tore down the way the Europeans fought with all their their heavy armor and all this stuff, and and he uh, he he just kind of demolish that idea by actually stabbing them in the back or something like that. Maybe I'm backtracking here, but uh, I, was that that part of that? No, I think it was that the, the he combined the out the cavalry and the common soldier. That is, they they came in on horseback and with the arrows. And he's a little they've been criticized in some of the reviews how he said that the, they could use, for some reason the the uh, the uh, Mongols could use the enemy's arrows that they had shot and had fallen on the ground, but the other people couldn't use theirs. But they never explained how. But uh, he said that, that that tactic made armor obsolete. I think that was a, a point he made. And, and of course, that, that uh, uh, made a lot of the aristocracy in Europe somewhat obsolete, too. Yeah, he had the use of the cavalry, light cavalry, you know, go like crazy. The, the, the knights were great on their horses, but man, if they fell off, that was it. So, uh, but I hadn't heard the one about the arrows done. That's interesting. <laughs> I wonder why they couldn't use the Bulgarian arrows. That's wild. Well, listen, Don. What what book are we gonna What are we gonna do next time? If you don't mind me asking, we're getting near the end of the hour. Before we go there, I, I wanted to say one thing to the group. The current um, on the Bard NLS download site, the current magazine of the month, which you can't tell what the title is until you download it, but it is the quarterly military history magazine. And I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like the kind of magazine that other people in this group might be interested in. So I wanted to mention that that's what the current magazine of the month is. So we go to magazine of the month and just bring it down? Is that it, Sherry? I've never done that. Yes, if you go to um, recently added magazines and just scroll down through there until you find magazine of the month, I think it's the September one because it seems like that one's a little bit behind, but it is the current one. And if you go to recently added magazines, they only have the most recent issue out there. And it won't have a title for magazine of the month, but I've downloaded it and that's what it is. Thank you. I will read that. I I read uh, just jumping, uh, what is it, this week or something like that. I like that. I can read it quickly. And uh, I try to keep up to it. I don't always, but I like it. Yeah, that is a good magazine. Unfortunately, I pretty much dropped my magazines. I don't have time anymore, but I, it's either magazines or not. And I used to read nothing but magazines. It's uh, changed. The book for, and I'm going to get it too that uh, tonight, uh, is uh, I, we were looking at books last time about Abraham Lincoln, and uh, there were two two choices and the better book even though it's longer is is um, team of rivals uh, the uh, political genius of Abraham Lincoln by uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin who is a very well-known author and her writing is so much better than the other and she originally intended apparently to write two books but they made it into one so I thought what we do since it's a 37 hour book is to do the first part one in November, and that covers the uh, development of four, the four main characters, uh, sort of a multiple biography of Lincoln and his three rivals uh, through the uh, inauguration for president in uh, 1860. And then that afterward is the Civil War and his shooting, his, his murder, so that would be for December. So, uh, if that's all right, I think that's the book we're going to do it. It's called Team of Rivals by Doris uh, Kearns Goodwin. It's read by Robert Sams. I don't know the him, but it's, uh, let me, I got the DB number here, two here somewhere. If I find it, I, I thought I had it right here. Uh, Okay, Don, Team of Rivals, is it part one, and I mean, is it that easy, part one and part two, or do you want us to read up to the Civil War and stop? How do you want us to, how do we know when we're at part two? I love Doris Kearns Goodwin. Now you're reading my kind of, my author. I think she's the greatest. Oh, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, just read the introduction and part one, and you're fine, and then chapter 12 starts the second part, and so... Uh, uh, that's what you want to do, and it's DB six one six two. That's DB six one six two. It's also available on uh, RFB and D. 
and of course on our tape with the same number. But uh, uh, yeah, Doris is an excellent writer. She got herself in a little trouble uh, with her footnotes on the, the Kennedy book, but uh, the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, I guess. But I read the guy's book, and all she did was forget to put some quotes around it. She did attribute this stuff, so I think she's a very good author. And it was they were both books were Lincoln uh, Prize winners, but uh, hers is much better read written. I've read that book and it is absolutely excellent. It's just fascinating how she goes into the biographies of all these guys who absolutely hated Lincoln and how they, they came around by the end of the book. It is really, really good. I look forward to seeing what everybody thinks. Oh, I agree. I love this a few times, I think, and uh, I look forward to reading it again because it, it's just beautifully written. Okay. Did she write uh, the Kennedys, America's Emerald Kings? I, I'm I'm not sure I'm familiar with this woman. I think it was a, I don't think I heard it under that title anyway. But I'm not a. Uh, I, I think that's another author. The Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds. Didn't she write about FDR and uh, Johnson? I think she's a so she wrote. Uh, not wait till next year in baseball and the avid sports fan and uh, I love her I think she's great is DB six one six two is that all of it I thought she had to have five numbers for DBs you guys not necessarily thank you okay well Don this is great and I thank you and I'm gonna we'll officially uh, stop the recording our um, editor wants to know when we do that and uh, we'll stop. He'll keep going, but he'll edit it out. So thank you, guys. This is a good discussion, and I hope I can finish this book because I've gotten so far into it. It was a good discussion. You guys are great people. Okay, I'm on my way. Thank you, and thank you, Don. Bye now. Thanks, Don. Another good, great job as usual. Looking forward to next month. Goodbye, guys.